You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello listeners and welcome to the 1922nd edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 30th of March 2023. The editor of this edition is Claire Meller, the producer is Harvey Johnson and your readers are Harvey Johnson and Val Fletcher. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. And the first headline is the front page of the Berry Free Press, which said, Emotional Journey for Gary, 35, After Cancer Shock. A man who was diagnosed with stage 4 bowel cancer, aged 34, after going to hospital with flu-like symptoms, has spoken of his roller coaster of emotions as he raises funds for treatment. Gary Welsh of Stowmarket was diagnosed in late 2021 and has now launched a GoFundMe page to raise £50,000 to fund a cancer treatment drug not available on the NHS. And our second headline again from the Berry Free Press. Challenging and exciting times ahead for new chef. And I'm going to continue with this headline. The Chief Executive of West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust tells Barbara Eels how listening to staff will be the key to success. New Chief Executive Dr Ewan Cameron has taken the helm of West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust with no doubt in his mind that huge challenges lie ahead. But it is also an exciting time for Dr Cameron, whose feet have scarcely touched the ground since he took up the role last month. With the prospect of a brand new hospital due to be completed before the end of the decade, he can look forward to leading the Trust through a major transformation. He must also navigate one of the toughest periods in NHS history as it emerges from the Covid pandemic and faces the impact of massive waiting lists, overloaded emergency departments and strikes. But, as he says, Difficult times are when you can make the greatest difference. One thing he stresses over and over again is the crucial role of the Trust's 5,000 plus staff in tackling problems and improving patient care. That's why meeting as many of them as possible has been one of his top priorities. In his first four weeks, he has visited more than 60 different teams ranging from wards in West Suffolk Hospital to hubs where community services are based. Winning back confidence after the whistleblowing controversy that led to the resignation of former Chief Executive Stephen Dunn is also high on his list. His job comes with responsibility for the efficient working of every aspect of the trust services, from life-saving surgery to the hospital cafe. The buck for shaping the future of the organisation stops with the chief executive. It's a responsible job, but a rewarding one, he says. 
Dr. Cameron is the first medical doctor to take on the chief executive role since West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust was established in 2011. It will enable him to see things from both sides of the fence because he will continue working as a gastroenterologist in the hospital. I'll spend one afternoon a week doing endoscopy. I'm really keen to do that because I love doing it and spent many years training to do it. But it also enables me to be a member of staff and experience what it's like to work in the hospital. Being a doctor gives you a different perspective on health services. It gives you a different way of understanding the challenges that clinical staff face. Dr Cameron joined the West Suffolk Trust from Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. Born in London and with Scottish heritage that explains the less common spelling of his first name, he grew up in Watford where his mother still lives in the family home. From a pretty young age, around 12, I knew I wanted to be a doctor, he says. There were doctors and nurses in our extended family and I was also interested in science, particularly biosciences. It seemed a good way of using those skills to help people. I've never regretted that decision. If I went back, I would do the same again. He studied medicine at Jesus College, Cambridge, and later specialised in gastroenterology. Much of his career has been spent in hospitals in East Anglia. I became a consultant 16 years ago at Addenbrooke's, my main area of clinical interest is endoscopy. I found myself leading the endoscopy unit and bowel cancer screening centre. I hadn't intended to finish up in leadership. I'd planned to do a lot of... Advanced endoscopy and teaching and research, but I really enjoyed my time leading my department. He spent five years on the board of the hospital as Executive Director of Improvement and Transformation. For a year, he also covered the post of Chief Operating Officer, responsible for the day-to-day -day running of the hospital during the most difficult days of the pandemic. The forward-looking reputation of the West Suffolk Trust, including integrated services with NHS and social work teams based together, and its renowned use of digital technology, was what persuaded him to move. It is a really excellent trust with an excellent reputation for delivering very good care. I was excited by the combination of the great people I had heard about working here, where community services are integrated and the reputation for delivering much more joined-up care. I was excited by the digital technology, and it's only going to become more important. The digital patient records in West Suffolk have been recognised as a global exemplar. If I look back, I would sit in an outpatient's clinic, looking through big piles of notes if someone had been able to retrieve them. Everything was in a different place. The digital system allows us to deliver that care much more efficiently. Plans to replace the ageing West Suffolk Hospital, which was built in the early 1970s, with a new hospital in Bury, was another factor. It's exciting to build something that will impact care for the next two generations, says Dr Cameron. We hope it will be finished by the end of the decade. We own the site and have planning permission to a certain point. There are more planning details to be worked out. He is relishing settling into his new job and getting to know people. 
The staff have been incredibly welcoming. I've spent a lot of time going out and meeting as many as possible. I'm loving it so far. I've really enjoyed meeting staff and hearing about the genuine pride people have in the organisation. It's a real community organisation. On Monday, he was at the Mildenhall Hub, where community nursing and social services teams are based. The real strength is that they're working in the same building, he says. Talking to staff across the Trust, which serves a population of 280,000, spread over 600 square miles, with hospitals in Bury and Newmarket, has helped him understand their priorities. I've heard some really strong themes. They include the importance of working together in strong teams and a real desire to deliver great care to patients and the community. I've heard about the real benefits that acute and community services are delivering and the real importance of integrating with social care. All these things came out as really key. Another important thing was the challenges some people have felt about being able to speak up within teams. I want people to feel listened to. We all recognise the things that have happened in the organisation in the past, and there is an enormous amount that has been done to try and rectify that, and more to be done. I want to make West Suffolk the safest environment for people to be working in and to raise concerns, and when concerns are raised, we will do something about it. Our staff are in a place where they can see where the challenges are, and that is the way we can deliver even better services. He paid tribute to Craig Black, the Director of Resources, who stepped up to the role of Interim Chief Executive after Stephen Dunn left. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Craig Black for the excellent work he has done guiding the organisation through difficult times. His knowledge will be invaluable to me, he says. Meeting the ever-growing need for the trust services is a key concern. The demand for services is really high in urgent and emergency care and elective waiting lists are long. A lot of work is going into trying to bring those down and we know as the population ages that will mean a significant increase in demand. Finding ways to tackle that will be really important. In some cases there are relatively straightforward solutions like the new diagnostic centre at Newmarket Hospital, a £15 million project due for completion next year. In other cases, the solutions will be more complicated. The challenges that are particularly important are the modification of care, changing the way care is delivered, to allow the hospital to function and finding the best way of delivering care to the people of West Suffolk. Digital technology will become increasingly important. It will make it easier for staff to do their job. There are staff shortages worldwide and it's no different in West Suffolk. We're working very hard to recruit as many as we can. The rate of vacancies are reducing, but there will continue to be shortages for a while. We are doing a range of things, including grow your own, finding ways to train up our own staff, with nursing and therapy apprenticeships, for example. One in five of our staff are from overseas, from a total of 80 different countries. We are very reliant on staff from other countries and are doing active recruitment. He hopes the recent NHS pay disputes will soon be resolved. The amount of work the teams have had to put in to keep things functioning during the strikes is incredible. 
They are incredibly busy already and we really hope the strike action can come to a mutually agreed resolution soon. Dr Cameron, who is married with a daughter, lives near Newmarket. His interests outside work include keeping fit, which involves running and climbing all of Scotland's highest peaks. I run a lot, every other day, and I love walking our dogs. Running and walking are a good way to clear the mind. I've done marathons in the past, but I think my marathon days are probably over. Whenever I can, I get up to Scotland to hill walk. I've climbed all the Munros and plan to do them again. In summer, I play for my village cricket team. I like to be outdoors as much as possible. My article has a photograph of teachers on strike outside St Benedict's Catholic School and waving relevant banners and flags. A long-standing teacher has said the situation could collapse as he spoke during strike action of how bad the issues facing the profession had got. Last week, National Education Union, that's NEU for short, teachers walked out up and down the country to amplify their message to the government in the ongoing dispute over pay. Some schools in the Bury St Edmunds and Stowmarket areas were partially closed due to the action including St Benedict's Catholic School and County High School, both in Bury. Thursday, March the 16th, was the second day in a row of strike action, which saw Suffolk NEU members travel to London on March the 15th to join thousands of other public sector workers in a demonstration at Trafalgar Square. At the picket line outside St Benedict's Catholic School on March the 16th, Neil Stiff, a geography teacher at St Benedict's, spoke generally about issues facing the teaching profession. He said, This is my 30th year of teaching, all in schools in Suffolk. I have never known a situation where resourcing is so poor. We are expected to do more and more. Teachers are now social workers. We just do so much more that we didn't do when I started the profession. And I think it's just got to a point where things are so bad the situation could collapse. He added, We're not seeing the young staff coming through, and young staff that do come through leave within two to three years. They can get better paid work elsewhere. So we are getting non-specialist teachers trying to fill in. And it's just a critical situation and the government doesn't listen. It's time to act. He said it had been heartwarming to see the level of support for teachers and educators. Teachers have said the strike action isn't just about pay, but the issues of funding and recruitment and retention. On March the 17th, intensive talks began between the government and education trade unions, focusing on teacher pay, conditions and workload reduction. A joint statement said... In order for talks to begin and, we hope, reach a successful conclusion, the NEU has confirmed it will create a period of calm for two weeks, during which time they have said no further strike dates will be announced. The owner of a flying school who was given four months' notice to leave its site at Ruffham Airfield has said it was pursuing every avenue after the latest talks with landlords. Chris Shepherd Rolls of Skyward Flight Training received a letter from site owners Ruffham Estate last month 
informing him his lease would not be renewed after it expired at the end of May. But Chris, whose school has more than 200 members and 95 students, thought there may be some positive news from a meeting two weeks ago with the estate's manager. He said, We've always been good tenants and paid the rent, but I was really shocked and surprised when they came back to us and said, No, we still have to go. So, after a decade at the former World War II airfield, Chris said he was talking to several working groups on options and ideas for the £350,000 business. In a statement, he said, With the final date of operation being May the 31st, relocation is extremely difficult. There are very few alternative locations in the area which can accommodate a training school of this nature. We are pursuing every avenue to find an alternative operating base. I still, at the back of my mind, am hoping we can stay here at Ruffham, but we will have to wait and see. Roger Spiller from Ixworth is replying to a letter that was in the Berry Free Press on March the 10th. In the letter to the Berry Free Press on March the 10th, the managing director of JNIC defended the planning application for Copart in a brilliant example of creating straw men and women to knock down. He rails against those who are against any, de- any development at all. I have not come across such people. From my contact, their objection is to the specific application on behalf of the US-based multinational Copart, not to any development. This would be their biggest site in the UK, receiving badly damaged cars for sale online in auctions or for destruction. Environmentally desirable unless they bring pollution to Stanton. The reasons for objection are the size and nature of the development and the various pollutants which it will disturb or bring in. Noise will be increased for neighbours due to vehicles and dismantling. There will be an increase in traffic from Copart's vehicles, but also those delivering and collecting wrecks or bought online. This traffic will arrive any time, waiting for delivery or collection, a traffic hazard as in Dedham, where Copart has proved to be a bad neighbour, inconsiderate to residents facing queues of parked or slow-moving vehicles, obstructing local access. Lighting will be extensive, some as high as 12 metres, that is 40 feet. This will illuminate a large number of shiny surfaces on the cars, reflecting light upwards, thus destroying any hope of creating a darker sky and have a damaging impact on wildlife. Air pollution on roads and from the site will increase. They seem to be ignoring some traffic-generated pollutants with emphasis on NOx, the oxides of nitrogen, which modern engines have reduced. The toxic and cancerous PM2.5 particles from burnt fuel, tyres, road surface, brakes and clutches are now probably the biggest killers by traffic. Chemical pollution is a big problem on site. A USAF base from 1944 to 1963, when the last nuclear missiles left. Many hazardous chemicals, including PFAS, used for firefighting, will have polluted the soil, 
disturbing these chemicals can contaminate our local drinking and run off into streams, polluting the Blackbourne and the Little Ooze. The US Environmental Protection Agency has just declared PSAF chemicals having no safe level. Over 700 US airbases are polluted with these forever chemicals. Wrecked cars will also contain oils, petrol, diesel, hydraulic fluids, asbestos and acids, which many objectors fear will cause pollution. There are benefits from the new access road to the Shepherd's Grove Industrial Estate to a new roundabout on the A143. This should reduce heavy traffic in Stanton. Also new jobs, providing they are housed in the locality, at an affordable price or rent. The low rate of social housing construction and a waiting list make it unlikely. Janik is proposing several plots on the A143 roundabout to be used for fast food restaurants and other late night venues, creating additional traffic, noise and light. Traffic generated will contribute to that from the likely development along the A143 around 3,000 new houses, between Bury St Edmunds and Stanton, which is likely to double the traffic levels. Up to five new roundabouts, sources of congestion, will be needed. Objectors have looked with care at the evidence and concluded this is the wrong place to put such a large, noisy, polluting development. Residents of Stanton and surrounding villages are seeking to prevent permanent gridlock, noise and damage to our health, water supply and rivers. And on another subject also of environmental concern, uh, under the heading Sizewell Sea tests out CO2 capture plan at Lowestoft. A test plant could provide the blueprint for a full-sized carbon capture facility at a future Suffolk nuclear power station capable of offsetting most of the UK's rail emissions. Sizewell Sea and Associated British Ports have joined forces to create a unique demonstrator direct air capture, that is DAC, facility at the port of Lowestoft. A scaled-up version of this could have a big impact on the UK's plan to cut carbon emissions and reach net zero, they say. Direct air capture uses chemical reactions to pull carbon dioxide out of the air and then store it. If the demonstrated project is successful, a permanent full-scale DAC unit could be employed using heat generated from Sizewell C to extract CO2 from the air. This could potentially capture 1.5 million tonnes of CO2 each year, enough to offset nearly all the UK's emissions from railway transport, say Sizewell C bosses. The government awarded £3 million to Sizewell C and its partners Birmingham University, Nottingham University, Helical, Atkins and Alchad Babcock in 2022 as part of the Greenhouse Gas Removals Competition to develop the DAC technology. All the engineering design, construction and testing activities for the demonstrator unit will be carried out in the UK. Sizewell C Director Julia Pike said, We are delighted to be developing plans with ABP to locate the demonstrator DAC facility at the port of Lowestoft 
and to help drive net-zero innovation in the east of England. DAC is one part of our plan to make Sizewell C a low-carbon hub, which will help kick-start other technologies and deliver even more value to our energy system. ABP Regional Director Andrew Harston said it was a great step forward in the two businesses' shared goals. The project aligns closely with ABP's recently published strategy to achieve net zero by 2040, as well as SZC's focus on the production of clean, low-carbon energy. Atkins and Altrad Babcock will advise on the plant's scalability for future integration at Sizewell C. A senior Newmarket councillor has accused a district council of trying to hijack efforts to move the town's market back to the high street. Councillor Andy Drummond was town mayor when proposals were agreed back in 2017 to take the market back to its original home and, the following year, stalls were up and running again with traders agreeing the move had been a lifesaver. It was a great success bringing footfall to the high street, said Councillor Drummond. I can't say I liked the flimsy red plastic barriers and, ultimately, it was those that caused an alleged near-miss health and safety incident that resulted in the market's move back to its market square deathbed. He said West Suffolk Council had now drawn up plans to move the market back, which both the Town Council and New Market bid backed. But we are now playing a ridiculous game where West Suffolk has found a couple of hundred grand for the move from various Covid recovery schemes, but to stop it happening, they have concocted a makeover that will cost more than £400,000 in the knowledge the Town Council will never be able to pay the difference. Council Drummond said that earlier this month he had been at a presentation by consultants of the proposed scheme which included raised curbs and street furniture. How much money has been wasted on this smokescreen, he said. The Town Council should not contribute one bean towards this disingenuous scheme because it does not control the market charter. West Suffolk does, so they can take the ball back any time they choose. Let's consider why West Suffolk might want to leave the market where it is. West Suffolk owns the Guineas, which is leased to a tenant. That tenant would prefer the market where it is to bring footfall to their shops, not the high street. Newmarket and Mildenhall MP Matt Hancock has warned that proposals for a massive solar farm which would cover nearly 3,000 acres of countryside undermine support for renewable energy projects and should be sent back to the drawing board. The former Health Secretary told a Commons debate the consultation for the Sonica project had been what he called woeful. Speaking at the adjournment debate on large solar farms, Mr Hancock said, As a supporter of solar energy, isn't the central point that if local support isn't there for projects because they're in the wrong place, then actually we'll undermine support for renewable energy. In my constituency, I've supported many solar projects and continue to support them now. But the Sonica project goes right around villages, it destroys local amenity, and the consultation has been woeful, 
and both county and local councils are against it, as well as the Culture Secretary, Lucy Fraser, whose constituency it also covers. And he added, Isn't it precisely the point that if you support solar, you should support it in the right place and not rub people's backs up with terrible consultation from projects that should be sent back to the drawing board? The official examination process for the application ends on Tuesday and a decision on whether the project should go ahead is expected later this year. But, if given the green light, the farm would be Britain's biggest and one of the largest in Europe. A new market volunteer driver who delivers potentially life-saving blood and medical supplies to hospitals and the East Anglian Air Ambulance has hit out at catalytic converter thieves who disabled his charity-owned vehicle. John Millard of Oriel Walk, Studlands Park, is a trustee of Serve, Suffolk and Cambridgeshire, also known as the Bloodrunners, and has been a volunteer for the charity for more than a decade. Sometime between Saturday night and Tuesday, thieves targeted the charity's white Toyota Oris vehicle, which bears the charity's logo, when it was parked in the estate garage block 14 and stole its catalytic converter. I just happened to be the custodian for the blood car for the last couple of months, said John. I was supposed to be on duty on Tuesday evening, delivering blood. But when I got into the car and started it up, there was a horrendous noise and I knew straight away what had happened and with the charity vehicle immobilised, I had to use my own car. I was just seething with anger. What has happened to society today? I can't understand why someone would do this to what is obviously a charity vehicle. It will cost a fortune to get it repaired, and that will have to come out of the charity's funds. John, who has reported the theft to the police, said his own car had fallen victim to converter thieves two years ago. It only takes the thieves a couple of minutes to get them off, he said. The charity John volunteers for was launched in May 2011, with Ipswich Hospital closely followed by West Suffolk Hospital. The following year, it started deliveries to Peterborough City, City Hospital, Papworth and Hinchingbrook Hospitals. In August 2012, it launched the donor baby milk service, which sees donated human milk collected and delivered and used to support premature babies in the hospital maternity units of Suffolk, Cambridgeshire, and when requested, anywhere in the country. The service, which in 2019 received the Queen's Award for Voluntary Service, gets no government funding with its costs being met by donations from the public, local businesses, charitable grants and other awards. John is one of around 160 volunteers who take calls and organise the motorcyclists and drivers who give their time and mostly use their own vehicles free of charge. We brought you one of the reader's letters a little earlier in the recording and here we have two more reader's letters. Uh, the first one from Michael Michalak of Swaffham Road, Burwell, headed Closures Cause Problems for the Elderly. Now, Michael says, 
The news that Barclays are closing their new market branch will, I'm sure, cause consternation to hundreds of people. My wife and I have no computer and do not wish to spend our waking day staring into a mobile phone. When it comes to banking, all we ask is to be able to walk into a branch and if there is a problem, to be able to speak to a human being. To say you can phone is a joke when all you will get is a voice saying you're being held in a long queue and then being forced to listen to music for God knows how long. We have no interest in online banking or using an app, whatever that is. Call us dinosaurs if you wish, but closing banks causes dire problems, especially for the elderly. But do those sitting around the boardroom table really care? I doubt it. And another letter, this time from Roger Timmins of Stetchworth. With reference to your headline, We Are Like Lepers, which was in the Newmarket Journal on Thursday, February the 3rd, he says, Personally, I'm not surprised that there's been no investment in Newmarket by Suffolk County Council. It seems to me that whenever anybody outside the racing fraternity proposes anything, it is met with opposition. It may be anecdotal, but I heard that someone in the racing industry had opposed plans for commercial planes to fly over Newmarket while waiting to land at Stansted because it would frighten the horses. So these very intelligent animals can accept helicopters and small aircraft with their rich owners and trainers and their jockeys landing within yards, but are upset by planes at 20,000 feet. Then, recently, somebody complained about the traffic on one of the major roads. Some people seem to be blinkered and unaware that many visitors to Newmarket have no interest in horses or racing. They come for other business purposes. They're proposing building housing on or near Hamilton Road, but refuse building permission at the eyesore at the racecourse end of the town, apparently insisting it should remain as a stable by using some by-law, which I won't be surprised dated back to King Charles. But in any case... It is in an area where there is much more traffic than when the stables were originally built. Why can't they have a new state-of-the-art yard in Hamilton Road and build residential property at the end of the town? It would be safer for the horses and possibly be more convenient for the people. Camille Berryman is a reporter on the Berry Free Press and she says she's going behind the scenes at Woolpit Fudge Factory, where classic and unusual flavours reign. At first, the creamy chocolate flavour hits my taste buds. Then, five seconds later, my mouth is on fire as a flash of chilli chases it up. Chilli chocolate is not one of the classic fudge flavours, but then I was at Yum Yum Tree Fudge, which does not play by the book. The family-run firm creates its tantalising treats at a factory tucked away on Woolpit Business Park, its exterior giving little clue of the delicacies created within. Run by Adrian and Lily Turner, Yum Yum was made from their first and home for 11 years before the move to Woolpit in 2020. When we first started, we had two mission statements and we have not faltered, said Adrian. We wanted to make the UK's best fudge with the finest ingredients and to be the most environmentally friendly fudge company in the country. 
That has taken some work, I can tell you. The company has already received the Golden Charter Carbon Award, Suffolk, for its efforts. Everyone is aiming for net zero, but we are aiming to be carbon negative, said Adrian. And we have just about got there. The factory and their home are fitted with solar panels, with the energy stored in Tesla batteries. Meanwhile, the firm's two electric vans charge at night. From April through to September, we are almost off-grid. I say we are not cooking on gas, we are cooking on sunshine, said Adrian. Last month, the factory welcomed a thousand visitors to its second open weekend. The first was held three years ago, on March the 14th and the 15th, 2020, to celebrate the company's move to the site. The event was a resounding success, but just days later the entire country went into lockdown as the pandemic took hold. The timing could not have been worse. But while much of the country was isolated, the five staff of Yum Yum worked behind the scenes. There is no question the pandemic created challenges for the business, but it also created opportunities. The bulk of fudge sales are made through franchisees who visit events and fairs across Suffolk, Norfolk, Essex and Surrey. With almost all those events cancelled due to the pandemic, Yum Yum looked to other routes to shift the £30,000 worth of stock which had been made ready for the 2020 season. We gave half of it to doctors, nurses and food banks, said Adrian. And we went online. Our sales went through the roof. We went from £15,000 of online sales annually to £150,000. Lily said, everyone was in the same boat. We didn't have a lot of staff anyway. There was just five of us and most of us are family. This year, the events calendar is looking packed once more. We will have about three teams on the road going to about a 100 events selling our fudge, said Adrian. But before those teams can get on the road, the factory needs to produce the confectionery. Every week, a quarter of a tonne of fudge is made in Woolpit using those finest quality ingredients. Its stockroom is heaving with sacks of British sugar processed at Whissington near Downham Market, while the room also boasts the birch sap, which helps to give Yum Yum Tree Fudge its name and top-quality Belgian chocolate. Moving into the fudge kitchen, where I start to feel like Augustus Gloop, fudge maker Penair Mardal is preparing to pour a hefty bowl of that British sugar into the fudge mixer. When we started out, we just used to have two pots, and we stirred them by hand, but thus this does it all for us, said Lily. We leave Penair to it and move into the flavour room where Adrian's excitement is akin to that of a child in a sweet shop and it becomes clear this is where the magic happens. We try to use the best ingredients in the world, he says, while handing me a piece of crystallised ginger before wafting another flavouring, lemon, under my nose. My favourite flavour is this lemon curd. Then we'll find we you'll find we use real coffee in our coffee fudge. 
and this one is expensive. It's Madagascan vanilla paste, said Adrian. We always have lots of ideas for new flavours, but they don't always work. Then sometimes you'll find a surprising new combination. Years ago, Harrods asked us to make salted caramel, and we thought it sounded a bit odd, but it works, and it ended up a top seller. Now everyone wants salted caramel. Once flavourings have been added, the trays of fudge are moved to the drying room for one to two days. Adrian said, Most fudge is set on cold slabs, but we have a drying room instead, as it makes the fudge more creamy and less crystalline. Eventually, it is taken to the cutting and bagging room. Then its next destination is the stock room, where tray after tray of bagged fudge sits ready to be eaten and plenty of delicious samples are on hand. And Camille Berryman's favourite? It has to be that chilli chocolate. But sea salt comes a very close second. I know an item from News Newmarket which will rarely warm your hearts, I think, and so it should. Uh, shoppers have responded to an appeal by staff at a local travel agency for Easter eggs for children in care. Chocolate eggs are beginning to pile up at Premier Travel Shop at the Guineas Shopping Centre in Newmarket after manager Elaine Carr announced the start of the annual collection. Elaine has asked for donations of Easter eggs of any type or size or other seasonal chocolate goodies. The collection remains open until next Tuesday when they will be picked up by social services to be handed out to children living in care all over the area. Elaine hopes that anyone shopping for Easter eggs at the weekend for their own children or grandchildren will pop an extra one into their shopping basket to give to a child or young person up to the age of 16 who might not otherwise receive one. People in Newmarket have always been very generous, both at Easter and Christmas, when we collect presents for children in care, and I'm sure there will be this time, says Elaine. New source of water on the moon. Scientists have discovered a new and renewable source of water on the moon for future explorers in lunar samples from a Chinese mission. Water was embedded in tiny glass beads in the lunar dirt where meteorite impacts occur. These shiny multicoloured glass beads were in samples returned from the moon by China in 2020. The beads range in size from the width of one hair to several hairs. The water content was just a minuscule fraction of that, said Hei-Yu Hui of Nanying University, who took part in the study. Mining it would be tough, according to the team. And another short article. Body found in search for missing 34-year-old man. A body was found on Tuesday near the A1088 in Thetford in the search for a 34-year-old man. Norfolk Police appealed for information on the whereabouts of, oh, and I can't pronounce his name, but it's something like this, Vitautas Matusauskas. Well done. Who? Who was last seen on March the 11th. A police spokesperson said officers attended the location shortly before 2pm where a man in his 30s was unresponsive. The family of this gentleman have been informed. The death is not being treated as suspicious. 
Comedian, writer, actor and television presenter Griff Rhys-Jones is certainly a man of many talents. He's now back on the road with his new stand-up tour, The Cat's Pyjamas, which could include topics from age, family and nostalgia to crocodile smuggling, the TikTok generation and midnight trains. And here we have an interview with Griff Rhys-Jones by Kevin Hurst. It might be interesting to hear what he's all about. First question, when it comes to shows like The Cat's Pyjamas, what is your process in collecting and putting together your material for it? Well, I put out nets and trawl through my own experiences. A lot of it is based largely on stories of me getting into miserable situations either through embarrassment or calamities. There's a long story about me jumping off a burning ship in the Galapagos Islands, so it's a series of my funny stories. I just like to include real life and real things. For example, I did a show in Tring in Hertfordshire and found myself locked out of the theatre and the only way back in was to walk back in with the audience. So I walked in with them saying hellos and a woman said, It's him. Well, I hope you're going to be worth it. So I started that show with ten minutes of whether I was worth it or not. You just pick up things as you go along and they make me laugh. Also, by interviews like this, I remember stuff and think, maybe I will tell that story too. Who's your favourite comedian of all time, and why? When I was at school, maths was a real trial for me, so I would have to go upstairs to my bedroom and work away at it, and I could hear my father downstairs laughing. He had a high-pitched laugh, and I would come down and peer through the door to see what he was laughing at. And I loved the comedians of that era, Hancock and Frankie Howard. And I grew up thinking Frankie Howard was the epitome of comedy. He was not only funny with his material, he had a great act and was a very intimate comedian. As a Suffolk resident who gets involved in a lot of local campaigns over the years, what issues are getting you hot under the collar at the moment? I found over the years that Suffolk is full of very strange decisions on things. At the moment I urge everyone living in Ipswich to get involved in the consultation about the Ipswich Museum because it is a really interesting museum, a sort of period piece. Walking into it, it is like something out of a children's storybook. It is an extraordinary collection of Victorian mahogany cases and stuffed animals and things like that and brilliantly done. The museum has been given a lottery grant and it seems to imply that they'll get rid of all that, paint it white and put lots of signs up. I just want them to realise that museums have a museum-like quality themselves and this museum is a museum piece, so I want them to be very, very careful with that museum and not ruin its Victorian qualities. As well as that, I've been involved in the Felixstowe Beach Huts and I could not believe that East Suffolk Council voted to lose those beach huts. I think it's terrible, really. How do you feel comedy and people's tastes in comedy has changed over the years? The other day I went to introduce some Laurel and Hardy films at the Slapstick Festival, and people were roaring with laughter. Comedy does not change. The human being does not change. They laugh at the same things... All that happens is that people get pompous about it and start saying, this is not funny anymore. There are certain subjects you ought not to tell jokes about. 
but that is not the same as you can't. Comedy is a universal experience and it will go through fashions. People said the sketch show was dead and along came not the nine o'clock news. They said the sitcom was dead and then came the office. That is always changing and thank God for that. One of my colleague's favourite YouTube clips she plays to her six-year-old daughter many, many times is the Queen set at Live Aid in Wembley in 1985, which you and Mel Smith introduced. What are your memories of that historic day, and what was it like to stand on the Live Aid stage? It was bizarre going out on the Live Aid stage. The thing about Wembley was that it was the longest walk on I have ever done. You set off through the speakers and it was like walking out onto an aircraft carrier and you get closer and closer to this huge noise and you could not make out individuals in the audience as it was so huge. Mel, absolutely typically, just arrived there and said, where's the script? Luckily I had sat on the train and worked out some gags. It was a tragedy that we were cut out of the film Bohemian Rhapsody, I thought. Honestly, Queen would have been nothing without us. Afterwards, we went into the VIP enclosure and sat there. Mel watched it for a bit and then said, Well, I'm off. I have a horse running at Doncaster. I've got to go. And he just left. It was very, very funny. Typical Mel. And finally, what is the moment in your career that you are most proud of? Well, Live Aid has to be up there. But collectively, I would have to say, my appearances on stage because I've done lots of theatre. The nights of amazing comedy being in a wonderful play, they are just great, great, great nights, when it is a full house of people roaring with laughter because it is such a great and funny play. Recently, I'm very proud of having organised Happy Christmas Ipswich, which has been a fantastic success over the years, and we're off to do another one this year. Martin Seeley is Bishop of the Diocese of Ipswich and St Edmundsbury and he writes I am fascinated by trees their significance for me goes back to my childhood and as I think about it particularly to my father he died in 2020 just after the start of the first lockdown and I had learned just a few decades before that he had wanted to study forestry at university he ended up for various family reasons studying physics but that inclination to forestry never left him. So I have strong memories of woodland walks, learning to identify trees, and remarkably I still have a scrapbook with dried leaves, carefully labelled, barely fixed to the page with now browned sellotape. He was thrilled when we moved, when I was ten, to a house on a new housing estate, but with a surprisingly large garden, about a third of an acre and eleven mature oaks and ash with a single elm that was lost in the Dutch elm disease epidemic in the early 1970s. One of the oaks came down in the storm of 1987 and remained down, just as it would, just as it would if it had fallen in one of those woodlands I had walked as a youngster. I must have been about twelve when the tree fascination turned into action, and I planted a couple of conkers, which grew over five decades into substantial horse chestnuts. One blew down in a storm and I managed to salvage a couple of metres of the trunk and brought it back to Ipswich to turn into bowls. 
It is both mysterious and satisfying to think that a conquer I planted all those years before has somehow become an assortment and assortment of, if I may say so myself, beautiful pale yellowish bowls. Sadly, the people who bought our family home determined several of the trees were diseased and had them felled. I managed to persuade them to let me have some of the timber, oak and ash, and my son and I made two trips in a van and brought back a substantial amount that is now neatly piled up in our back garden, waiting for me to cut it up and turn it into more bowls. Looking back over this trail of trees through my life, it is no surprise to me that I have ended up growing them from seed. My father did the same, though in ones and twos. I have now distributed across the county about 400 seedlings that germinated in spring last year. Churchyards, farms, new woodland tracts, gardens have all become hosts to these infant trees. Most are hornbeam, with some field maple, which I chose because they're native to our, to our county. And a few oak, grown by another tree nurse, and passed on to me to find good homes for them. They are all in their distinctive ways beautiful, and essential to our welfare, and the welfare of our planet, essential to life. They absorb carbon dioxide, clean the air of pollutants, cool the air and reflect away the heat, improve the soil, support diverse wildlife. They are calming, comforting, beautiful and life-giving. It's Lent and we are walking inexorably to the cross, fashioned from wood. I have found myself wondering what sort of wood it was made of and how something so beautiful and so essential to life became an instrument of horror and death. One legend has the wood being dogwood, based on a poem of unknown but probably fairly recent American origin. The dogwood was a large tree, consigned to be small after the crucifixion, so the legend goes, so it could never be used for such a purpose again. Another tradition has it of olive wood, and equally unlikely given they do not grow tall enough to create the upright or cross piece. Why would you use a wood that produces food? There is an English tradition that the wood was elder, and another that it was mistletoe, then a tree, until with its use for the crucifixion it was cursed to be a parasite ever since. There is a long-standing tradition that the cross was made of four types of wood, cypress for the upright, cedar for the crossbeam, pine for the notice at the head, and box for the piece under the feet. The cross was the standard form of Roman execution, and the Romans executed large numbers of people by this brutal means, so the wood had to be easy to come by, and the structure of a cross had to be easy to produce. Oak is probably the most likely wood, widely available in the Holy Land, and growing to heights that easily render uprights and cross pieces for a cross. Something beautiful and life-giving is destroyed to become the destroyer of the source of beauty and life. But beauty and life will rise again.
and under the heading New Bishop's Blessing for Kitchen, this item. A new teaching kitchen was officially opened at St Louis Catholic Academy in Newmarket on Monday. The Fordham Road School was the first to be visited by Bishop Peter Collins, head of the Catholic Diocese of East Anglia, following his ordination in December last year, blessing the kitchen, called the Mustard Seed, he had the chance to take a closer look at the facility with some of the school's pupils and meet Bill Gredley, whose donation helped to fund the £30,000 project along with the diocese charity. Head teacher Sue Blakely said, It will provide a nurture space for children to cook with adults, space to develop good nutrition teaching and design and technology teaching space. We know that families and their children will greatly benefit from this new well-being and teaching area, and our next project is our mental well-being hub currently being planned and hopefully built over the summer. All these exciting areas help us to nurture and promote good mental health. The school was also chosen by Tesco shoppers to benefit from a donation from the store, which paid for new kitchen equipment. I wonder if some of you listeners will remember this looking back, something from 10 years ago and something from 25 years ago and something from 50 years ago. 10 years ago. A major heritage lottery fund bid was to be submitted in 2013 to turn the oldest functioning civic building in Britain into a heritage and exhibition centre. A campaign to raise £750,000 for the Guildhall project in Bury St Edmunds was launched in December. An undisclosed HLF bid was due to be submitted within the next three months. The Grade 1 listed building dates back to at least the 13th century, although there is some evidence that it may have been used even longer ago than that. It was once used by the townsfolk of Bury to imprison the abbot and has since served as a court and a council meeting place. Now, listeners, cast your minds back to 25 years ago. A young girl who used safety training to save her family from their burning home received a fire award for her efforts in 1998. Samantha Humphreys, aged 12, of West Row, remembered the advice she received at a council-run children's safety session when she was awoken by the fire the year before. She woke to see flames at the bottom of a door just inches from her bed, but she kept calm and got her family to safety, including their pet dog Tetley. Samantha said, I was surprised at all the fuss. I just managed to keep calm, shut the doors and get people out. (laughs) She received the county fire officer's commendation for her actions. And now, listeners, 50 years ago. Compromised plans for the future development of the Morton Hall area were approved by Berry Town Council in 1972, preserving most of the countryside views from the medieval centre of the town. The new plan had been drawn up by the borough surveyor, Mr Johnson Aspland. It involved a careful survey of what land can be seen from the town centre at eye level and it would mean that some area of land previously zoned for housing would not be built on and the amount of open space increased by about 40 acres. 
a quarter of the 400 acres would be kept as open space in the area. <laughs> How interesting in, in view of recent developments of further house building in that area. Yes, so indeed. How, how times have changed. <laughs> And just a little item from me before before Val winds up this recording for this week. Uh, one of the regular items in the Berry Free Press, of course, are the very popular items by local historian Martin Taylor. I haven't got time to read his article from last week, but he does pose a multiple-choice question which might tickle your brain cells. Because you know that Berry Snemmons has a cathedral, but do you know when an Act of Parliament made this a cathedral? moment to think about it was it 1120 was it perhaps 1913 was it 2005 do you know the answer well the answer was 1913 Berry St. was actually officially made a cathedral okay Val over to you dear <laughs> Some of you can slap yourselves on the back because you got it right. Absolutely. And, and who's to know? <laughs> we are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmund's Been News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pick sheet which you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press East Anglian Daily Times, the Haverhill Echo and New Market Journal from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Claire, Harvey and me, Val, it's goodbye. Goodbye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.